0: The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT21 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the most pleasant exhaustion podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slay RX. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm the father of twin boys, and I'm a college professor.
1: My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a mom to three girls, and I'm a CPA.
2: My name is Eric Hall. I'm a coach and endurance athlete up in Raleigh, North Carolina the father of two teenagers and oh, three teenagers now and two and a half, two and, a half and the uh, husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa.
0: Glad y'all are with us. Let's start exactly where we said we were going to start when we left off last week. And that is with that workout that you did last week. Michelle, you took the power on your watch.
1: That's right. Uh, I headed to the track where we thought we'd get some pretty good data, um, looking at the power. I had a two by 12 minute tempo run, and I did it and I took all the data after, took the screenshots, sent it to Eric and George and just let them go at it, so.
0: Right on, right on. So let's talk about first, before we talk about the way it actually looked, let's talk about the way it should have looked, like the way that we would expect it to look, okay? And so, Michelle, did you run those at a fairly even effort level in your mind?
1: Well, I went out at the prescribed pace and Mm -hmm. it was a little bit too easy. So I would say the first third of the first one was less effort than the last two thirds of the first one and the second one. But I think it was just a general I mean, I think you could kind of see the shift a little bit, maybe in heart rate. And then it was pretty, it was totally even effort, basically. Um, Right on, right
0: on. And so, so, so you basically did the workout as prescribed. You didn't go blasting out and then like fall apart in the last few minutes of the first repeat or anything else like that. You ran it up to about tempo pace and you held it there for the first 12 minutes. You kind of tweaked it in order to get it right. And then you took the short rest and then you did the second 12 minutes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to make sure I was running hard enough, but also remembering that the point was not to be, I'm not sure how it was written, totally exhausted at the end of it or something. So, yeah.
0: Right on. Very good. So, given that, what we would expect to see or what one would expect to see in your power chart would be a pretty flat power line there might be a slight uptick in the power as you started putting in a little bit more power as you started you know, turning up the intensity just a little bit, but it'd be a pretty flat power line. As opposed to like your heart rate, would, which would start fairly low and would gradually rise and then would drop a lot because you're pretty fit right now. It would drop a lot during the short rest and then it would kind of gradually rise again during that second repeat. But the two repeats themselves should have been basically flat plateau-looking 12-minute blocks. Um, Eric, is that what we saw?
1: Were they? Were they beautiful, flat, (laughs) plateau-looking blocks, Eric?
0: So before
2: we get into that, I just (laughs) want to (laughs) remind everybody how we're measuring power. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have a direct measurement. We talked about that last week with cycling. You have a direct measurement. With running, you don't. And the way the tool, the sensors are... Calculating power or coming up with a power number is they're measuring Michelle's movement forward and side to side and up and down and acceleration and deceleration. So mm-hmm. that that is how it is deriving. I'm going to use the word deriving power.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So when when I first looked at this, it was, it was a little messy because, no, they're not flat plateaus for the two 2400. I'm just going to call them 2400s. They were 12 minutes, about 2400 meters it's kind of jaggedy and what's really interesting is right at the beginning the power goes the differential from where she was is about i don't don't even have a good measurement but it goes really high and then over the first minute of her run it settles down and it's more like a it's almost like a heartbeat it looks like an ekg for that 12 minute period for the next 11 minutes so if you, if you want to figure, if, if you think about it, why did it do that? Well, I mentioned that it measures power based on acceleration. And Michelle was going at a really easy pace. And when she hit the start of that first tempo, she had to accelerate. So A, it's, this is what you would expect. And B, it's, it's accurate. You know, when, when, While you're accelerating, you're using more power. And then it settles down. And it stays, I'll say it was fairly consistent across that 12-minute period, the 2,400 yard, meters, 2,400 meters. Uh, it still is a little jaggedy. And as we were talking about it, I did not know initially how far Michelle had run during this time period. Uh, I couldn't, looking at the, the graph, I couldn't ascertain that. But then Michelle said it was 2,400 meters. And I went and took, okay, 2,400 meters, you know, that's, that's about...
0: How many laps? How many laps, Michelle?
1: It was more than six laps. So,
0: so it, twenty-four hundred meters would be six laps, but but Michelle's going to explode if you say if we leave it at twenty-four hundred meters. It was it was closer to probably twenty-eight hundred meters. <laughs>
2: okay, so let's let's say twenty-eight hundred meters. That's even better. Okay, twenty-eight hundred meters. So we 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 did six laps plus. You multiply that by the number of turns in each lap, and I'll get to that in just a minute. And you're getting, you know, sixteen or so turns. Well, when you're running, in fact, when when anybody is moving and it goes through a turn, that's considered an acceleration. So these jagged marks, these ups and downs could represent, I, I don't know for sure, but they could represent the 16 turns that Michelle went through during that 12 minute period. So again, it makes sense. You have an acceleration as she gets to the turn and then it comes back down as she comes out of the turn because the watch sees an acceleration. It thinks it's more power, even though... If you look at Michelle's pace, it's pretty rock solid across the period. I'm good like that. (laughs) You are good like that. Now, one thing you'll notice is the heart rate at the beginning and the heart rate at the end are different. And George made this comment just now, and it's kind of a steady increase. I just heard a piece of information from Michelle, though, that I did not hear in the first conversation, where she said, well, the first third, I thought it was a little too slow, so I picked it up for the second two-thirds. And... uh, What I just noticed in looking at this at the first third, your heart rate, it took a little while to come up and it is a lagging indicator. We told you that it's a lagging indicator of your effort. So it was behind the power number, but for the first third, it's actually pretty flat. And then for the second third, it ramps up, sorry, the second two thirds, it ramps up and then it's flat again. Hmm. And I would say, I would contend that's because she did not get over, what would we say her lactate threshold? or she did not get to the point where her heart rate was on a steady increase. Instead, it ramped up and it was able to to supply. She stayed aerobic, basically. It, It was able to just get at a steady heart rate for the rest of the run. So this is an excellent example of heart rate being a lagging indicator of your effort because the power actually moved up on its own and then the heart rate got up and then it caught up. So, I think this is actually a, a really good example of, A, what George said, what we would expect uh, when we see someone running. Uh, this was an easy scenario, though, for the watch, if you ask me. It's on the track. It's flat. It's a consistent surface. And Michelle is running a very consistent pace. Michelle, were you looking at your watch for pace, or were you, or, or were you timing simply the laps? How were how you ch- judging pace?
1: Um, I went out the first two laps at the prescribed pace and I just made sure that I came through the 400 meter mark on that pace. That's the only mm-hmm. thing I look at. I mean, I I, use, I did use a smartwatch, obviously. I did try to use a Timex. It was dead. Um, <laughs> but I knew we needed this power function. But even in using the GPS watch, when I'm doing something like this on the track, and even if I'm running distance and not time on the track, I'm looking... I'm looking for the split i'm looking for that 150 or 145 or whatever it is coming through the 400 meter mark
2: and you no one can see this but i'm giving michelle two thumbs up because when you're on the track you should always use time uh, your gps will never be as accurate as the time so so and that shows in the data that she showed us you have a nice flat pace curve it does go up a little bit for the second two-thirds and then you see the heart rate catch up at the beginning and then ramp up for that second two-thirds and Get steady again, and the power spikes at the beginning, settles out. But i what I believe we're seeing is a acceleration on the 16 turns as you go through. George, what do you think about that? That's what I saw. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. The the slight accelerations that we saw, the slight power changes we saw as she went around turns, um, to me, were exactly that. They were slight. To me, the power curve looked pretty much exactly like it should have for this particular workout um i agree with you when you said that, that this was an easy task for the chorus right um and, and that's one of the reasons why we were interested in seeing this particular one but but michelle had that spike at the very beginning which makes sense which i had never actually thought about before but it but you know the same thing happens in a, on a bike when you're overcoming inertia and just starting to get going right yes. um but then it just kind of flattened out at that tempo level power basically and it stayed pretty flat save for a couple of very minor blips as the gps was adjusting because she was going around a curve and it thought that she was increasing her power um you know contrast that with so i turned on the power on my watch on the coros watch that belongs to michelle but that i borrowed from her like a year ago and have no plans to return um (laughs) And um, Obviously. and uh, so so I turned it on on that watch on Sunday and I went out for a run at Kennesaw Mountain on the trails, and and I downloaded the power afterwards and and it was interesting to look at it, it was fun to look at it, but it was not in any way mess. a flat thing yeah um, ups and downs turns all sorts of things it was it was a mess uh, the power really really was and there were some places I could tell where it was flat wrong um, but but based on the way I was feeling what I was running and all that sort of thing but um, I am going to gather a little bit more power with it. Um, so I, you know, given that, um, I was intrigued by something that, that Eric alluded to at the very end of the podcast last week. And it's something we didn't talk about when we talked about power measurements, but either in cycling or in running. Um, but I sort of picked up on it a little bit more when I went back and listened to the podcast after we put it out. Um, and that was that you said that, that you think that. We're not too far away from a place where we can use power on an individual basis, but we're pretty far away. And ultimately, you may never get to a place where we can use power on a community basis. Um, and I think that's an important point And it's one that we didn't really mention. Um, power can be used in running or in cycling as an individual metric. For example, if we say that my tempo pace or my functional threshold power in cycling is 300 watts and I do a workout and I average 300 watts for that particular workout, six months later, if I do that exact same workout and I average 340 watts, I have a discernible way of showing that I have improved over the course of those months of training, right? Same thing with Michelle. If Michelle were to go out, four months from now, six months from now, a year from now, and do this exact same two by 12 workout. And she was able to produce more power with her heart rate being basically the same. We would know, Hey, Michelle is actually improved in her fitness. Right. And I think that's a really good use of power. Um, I think, like you said, that's something they that are really close to being able to use power with even on the run. What I'm, what I'm wondering, um, is whether we'll ever get to that second thing. And the second thing is, if Michelle put out 250 watts for that two by 12, and I did the same workout and I put out 250 watts, is her 250 watts on her watch the same as the 250 watts that are on my watch? And I don't think we're to that place yet,
2: but. I don't think we're there either. There's just too many different pieces to that calculation. Mm-hmm. And even, I'll, I'll go one step further. If, if, if you change your shoes, it's going to change your power Mm -hmm. the amount your shoes absorb or don't absorb if you change the surface so it's there's also other there are other things that the that calculation just can't
0: can't account for so so I agree with you. And and in order to get a better handle on that.
1: <laughs> what did you do, George?
0: So so in order to get a better handle on that, I decided after we told y'all on the last podcast that we don't really recommend you going out and buying running power meters, I took some podcast money, thank you to our sponsors, and bought a stride power meter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and over the course of the next little while, I'm going to use it, and I'm going to at times have it on my garment, and I'll have the Coros on, so we'll measure from the Coros, and we'll see how the two power measurements compare, um, and I'll use it on the treadmill some, and I'll use it with varying different shoes, because the stride, you know, the foot pod, you just put it on the front of your shoes like you would put, um, you know, so anything else on, on the front of your shoelaces, um, and so, so this will give us a t- uh, the opportunity to kind of dig in here and see okay, is this actually a metric that you can measure consistently over time and therefore it can become something that helps you uh, determine whether you're gaining fitness and whether your training is working. Um, So the plan is for me to use it for the next little while here and then I'll pass it off to Eric and then maybe Eric will pass it off to Michelle if she's interested in it. And then maybe we can even rope in uh, Patrick if uh, if, if, if his uh, hamstring ever gets better or his knee ever gets better, but I guess we'll see. Uh, my plan was initially to to put it to a really good test this weekend at the Mountain Miss 50K, which uh, Michelle and I are planning to run uh, to have the stride on, on one foot and the Coros on uh, on as well. That's a little bit in doubt right now because I got bitten by a dog really hard during that Sunday run when I was measuring power, which by the way, did not register on the power meter and did not in any way really affect my power readings for better or for worse. Um, and so, uh, so I'm not, I'm not sure whether I'm going to make it to the starting line of the 50K, which is frustrating to me because I was starting to get excited about that. But
1: when are you going to decide? Inquiring minds would like to know.
0: So Friday night, probably races on Saturday. Um, no, I tell you. So I, I did a workout. I took two days off completely as I'm taking antibiotics and I got a tetanus shot and I have this deep wound on my leg from this vicious animal that, that, that ripped into me while I was running on Sunday. Um, I did a workout this morning on the bike and it did not go very well. In terms of just how i felt and everything else like that um i'm gonna do a run tomorrow and we'll see how it feels um and i think that'll shed a lot a lot on it but my big concern is is going out and running for four to five hours and sweating all over it and then sitting in the car and driving home and courting infection to something that evidently gets infected pretty easily from what i've been told we'll see we'll see um michelle what do you think you think i should do it
1: I think I have thought more about the potential of getting bit as severely as you did by a dog on a leash which I've always assumed (laughs) was pretty safe to run past you know coming on your left coming on your right Um, but that part of your experience is I mean I've probably thought about that a hundred times since Sunday so um, do I think you should run it that is not my decision (laughs) so I don't think I mean you got a tetanus shot, you're on an antibiotic. I don't know that the risk of infection is greater if you're running, but I'm not the one whose dog or whose leg got <laughs> chomped apart by a dog. So <laughs> you know. I
0: appreciate that, Michelle. That's a good answer. Actually, I, uh, I haven't decided we'll see how I feel tomorrow. I felt great on my run on Sunday. I did. The last
1: time you were unsure whether you were going to run it, that really pissed me off. But this time, this is like <laughs> totally not my decision. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so Eric sent me a long text, which I also appreciated a day or two ago, giving me advice about whether he thinks I should run it. Um, and and it what did was, Eric say? So, what did Eric say?
1: What did you say, Eric?
2: Well, I said that if it's going to if it's going to be internally infected, the bacteria is already in there, and it's sealed. So, if you're going to get an infection internal, you already have everything that's going to be in there and give you an infection. So,
1: And can I would the not, race exacerbate it?
2: Well, or you're saying so it's already there? I said it's already there and he's on an antibiotic. I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you whether it's going to take care of it. But I can tell you that there are precursors that tell you you're getting an infection or that you have an infection. So he would have, you know,
1: fever fever
2: and yeah if I
0: wake up with a fever on mistakes. Friday morning forget about it <laughs> right well, there's <laughs> a, there's, there, there's, there's a couple things that, that they, they don't are, want you there with breakers. a fever
1: anyway right, right. your COVID protocols are pretty strict so. but because
2: you asked George I'll say this you know sweating on it you can wipe the thing off sitting mm-hmm. on it on the way home if you're so nasty after a run don't get in the car and sit in on the way home. Get one of those antibacterial wipes and just mm-hmm. wipe the thing off. I don't think those are good concerns. I think the concern is what kind of damage was done to your muscle and what kind of mental, like, like how do you feel mentally about the run? I think that's what I focused on mostly at the end. I said, um, if physically and or mentally this isn't going to work out for you, then why why go do it?
0: Now I I, I think I, so. The, the, there's three things. The one is the infection thing, and I think you're probably right about that, Eric. Um, I think that that I I'm not at a huge risk of infection. Two is the actual muscle damage because there is a three-centimeter deep puncture wound in my hamstring. I mean, and so 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 that's something to consider as well, and that's something they'll shed a little bit light on it tomorrow. The third is the way that antibiotics mess with your system. Um, And I think that's kind of what was going on this morning on the bike, frankly, is that I just felt awful and I continued to feel awful for a while afterwards and a really bad headache and all that sort of thing. And I think that that's because my system's a little bit thrown off by antibiotics. Um, And so tomorrow we'll be telling, we'll see, we'll see how I feel when I go running tomorrow. So,
2: but, but I will say, you know, if, if you are concerned about this, you know, and you're in, on your run tomorrow, definitely on your run tomorrow, you know, Melissa, mentioned a product out there that you can use it's the frontiersman runner dog deterrent spray so in the, in the future it gives you 14 one second shots it's just like what you'd use on a bear it's, it's supposed to be safe for the dog safe for you it's even yeah. got a little velcro handle for you you know it's made really for
0: runners so. in, in in this particular instance the the, the whole thing happened so quickly that I would have been like unloading all 14 shots into the dog's face after it already bit me, (laughs) which, which probably would have made the awkward exchange that I had with the owner even more awkward.
1: (laughs) Um, Serious question. Can you sue the owner? Like if something were to have really hurt, Yeah, you can.
0: Yeah. But, but it's, it's, is it
1: somebody from your neighborhood or was it just,
0: it's actually somebody I know from childhood. Um, and so he he, he actually lives uh, more in the neighborhood where you and Eric grew up for, uh, now, but it's somebody I know who is a year ahead of me in my high school and I went to my same elementary school and I've known him for a really long time.
1: And he yeah. just happened to be out on the trails on Sunday.
0: With his kids and with his dog on a leash, yeah. Yeah, so, I wish yeah. I could have
1: heard that exchange.
0: Yeah, no, no, it, 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 was not, it was not ugly, it was not malicious. He was super apologetic. It was more awkward than anything. It was just like, hey man, Wish I was seeing you in a different circumstances than your dog eating my leg. <laughs> but, so but,
1: how
2: far from your car
0: were you? You uh, probably three, ran from his house. I ran from my house. I was three and a half miles from my house.
1: So when you came home with a gash <laughs> of mm-hmm. your leg gone, what did what did your family say?
0: Well, so so I walked in and I said, I said, <laughs> Casey, my wife, I said, Casey, come over here a second and bring your phone. And she's like, all right. Um, so she I said, I need you to take a picture of my legs. So I get bitten by a dog. And and I got bitten in a place that was just barely covered by the bottom of my shorts. And she's like, okay. And so she kind of pulls it out. And I pulled up my shorts. And at that point, it's bloody and nasty and gross. And plus, I ran some more on it. And so it's all dried on there and everything. And she's, oh, my God. <laughs> um and so so yeah uh and by all means uh uh most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners if you want me to text you some photos i'd be happy to but that's not the sort of thing i'm just gonna put out there for everybody oh <laughs> so i'll put m- it out m- there m- no, michelle kidding. and eric have both seen them already but don't expect this to pop up on our instagram <laughs> <laughs> um, um all right you all right, know George, let's,
2: when, when we were when we were in high school running nike came out with their you know just do it and, mm-hmm. and they had this they had this um the series of uh, they were um, what do you call them centerfold advertisements for their shoes. And they had things like um, barking at cows. And the one I remember was snarling at dogs, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever I'm running along and you know, you got the dog on the other side of the fence, grace hates it because I'll start like snarling at the dog on the other side of the fence. I'm going to think twice. Yeah, you're real
0: You're real tough when the dog's that. on the other side of the fence, aren't you, Eric? <laughs>
2: I'm still going to think twice about doing that, having your... You
0: know, Just like I'm experience. real tough when the dog's on the leash, at least I thought I was. So, yeah, this dog was on a leash. But. Um, all right, let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about some of the things that are going on in the wide world of endurance sports. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the Strava year-end report, um, and Michelle is, is on Strava, but not an avid Strava user. I know that Eric, Eric, you were probably somewhere in between me and Michelle, and that you put things on Strava, but, uh, but, but you don't really engage in it all that deeply. I like Strava, I look at, uh, I look at Strava segments, except for when I'm on Zwift, and, uh, and, and uh, I appreciate a lot of their metrics on there. But Strava at the end of the year, um, they start compiling all of their data. Uh, and they send data to all of your the individual athletes. They basically say, here's what 2020 looked like for you as an individual. And I think that's pretty cool. They say that that over the course of 2020, you rode your bike this many hours, you gained this much elevation um, in all of your activities. You uh, had workouts on this number of days. This is the number of hours you did. Um, The time of day where you were most active was this one. This was your longest one. This is when you won greatest elevation gain. This is the one that got the most kudos and on and on and on and on and on. So that's always kind of fun to see. But then the other thing they do at the end of the year is they put out a big report where they basically compile all of the data from all of the users. Um, And they said that in in 2020, there were 73 million total athletes on Strava. There were 1.1 billion activities that got uploaded by those 73 million total athletes. Um, Two million athletes joined every month there were 172,000 Strava clubs created. There were 71 million Strava challenges uh, joined by athletes. There were 386.4 million photos uploaded, and there were 7.1 billion kudos given from one athlete to the next athlete. So uh, kind of incredible numbers there that speak to the uh, the sheer volume there of, of Strava. And certainly it got bigger over the course of this year. Um, so the year-end report included a lot of human interest stories. Um, Michelle, what was the one about the woman who did the 100 miles around her block?
1: <laughs> that was my favorite one because I think she ran 25-mile uh, loops. And in between some of the loops, she went into her house. She fueled on donuts. Um, but she also got in, like, she checked her email, and she did a little bit of work throughout the time. And I think her time for 100 miles was about 21 hours. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just seems like a good deal to me. Run a hundred miles, <laughs> stay caught up on email and eat donuts. I just mm-hmm. that's that's amazing. Yeah, I'm in for right. that.
0: <laughs> she did it twice. <laughs> so she she <laughs> must said, have had a good time. <laughs> I, I have a I have a five mile loop from my house and it's almost exactly five miles, and it's a loop that I like a lot. And so, you know, basically she just said one day, I'm gonna go out and run this 20 times today and and, and did it. She did it two on two different occasions. Eric, you're 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 playing for a hundred mile later on this year. That's something you might want to do. That wasn't on my radar, but as you were saying, it,
2: as you were saying it, I was thinking of two of the two of the runs I've done that I actually really enjoyed. One was the Krispy Kreme challenge mm-hmm. here in North Carolina in Raleigh, where you run two and a half miles or so, you stuff twelve donuts down your throat, and then you run two and a half miles or so back to the the finish. But then the the Yeti challenge, I've got a loop that's exactly mm-hmm. five miles, mailbox mm-hmm. to mailbox, mm-hmm. and I started thinking could I do that 20 times? Would I want to eat donuts? <laughs> <laughs> would, I, would I even care about checking emails? Right? <laughs> I think I can think of some other things to do in there, but it actually started sounding interesting. So, so maybe, who knows?
0: All right, very good. Yeah, that Yeti challenge, I started off and I did the first two loops uh, four hours apart um, because the Yeti challenge is merely 30 miles, merely six times around the five mile loop. Um, but uh, but I was still carrying injuries from the LA uh, Marathon at that point. I've resolved I want to do the Yeti Challenge sometime throughout the course of this year, but I'm not sure exactly when it's going to be. um So yeah, uh, Wait, I think I'm going to do with it? it. So Eric did it. Okay. So but
1: you didn't you haven't done it yet? The I times done it's it has gone around here.
0: I haven't done it yet. I, I'm thinking I about doing it. it sometime. I want to do it before it gets too hot, so I want to do it sometime in the next three or four months.
1: And remind so. me, is it six miles every? Four hours. It's five.
0: It's five miles every six hours,
1: five Uh, or five
0: miles every four hours. And so (laughs) so it's, uh, yeah, no, I got to get it right. Five miles every four hours. So it's 30 miles total over the course of 24 hours.
2: My no. brain's about to explode here as you guys try to do the math
0: to come up with thirty miles. <laughs> the engineers. Not is all of us frustrated. are engineers, Eric. Six times, six times four. <laughs> what, okay, so another one of my favorite of the human interest stories they talked about. Did you see this one? Was the Vancouver Running Club that that they did virtual Boston, but they laid out a course on for their virtual Boston. Yeah, that where Traced yeah. the Boston Unicorn. Right. So that
1: is a cool feature of Strava. I mean, when you look at the Strava map and you've got the Boston unicorn,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. how do
1: they do that though? So I mean, we, we, how, how we much time goes into that?
0: A lot of time goes into that. We did okay. a challenge when lockdown first started back in April. Um, we did a challenge where we said to everybody, all right, you got a week, go out and draw something using the Strava, draw, draw something on a map using Strava. And people drew birds and people drew dinosaurs and people drew dogs. I drew Pac-Man chasing a ghost um and and my sons and I did it together in the field across the street from our house um and and it's super fun but yeah they did a 26.2 mile run all over Vancouver which intricately traced out the the unicorn uh uh logo of the Boston Athletic Association which puts on the Boston Marathon which I thought was super cool too
1: I mean they traced the logo the unicorn logo and they spelled Boston 2020 with their mileage
0: that's super impressive. That's hard, man. <laughs> That's very hard to do. Um, um, they talked about a guy named Corey Waltering. Um, he did the twelve hundred mile Ice Age Trail that goes through Wisconsin. Twelve hundred miles. He did it in twenty one days, thirteen hours, and thirty five minutes. He put it on Strava. It's the fastest that anybody's ever gone over the course of that twelve hundred mile trail. Um, it was twenty one days. Um, it talked about how Joshua Chepteguy's 5,000 meter world record, was on Strava. <laughs> and we talked about that a little bit at the time. Guy runs 1235 on the track and puts it on Strava. <laughs> um, and I didn't give it kudos until he And you didn't like name. it
1: because he <laughs> hadn't titled
0: so, it. So once he titled it, I gave it kudos. The kudos that it very richly deserved. Um, but I wasn't just going to give it kudos because it said evening run uh, that took place in Monaco. Um, Alephine Tulliamuk and Molly Seidel are both on Strava. Um, and it mentioned that they both uploaded their, uh, their uh, Olympic trials uh, runs there. Um, um, but then it also talked a lot, a lot of the statistics and it sort of derived information from the statistics, so I thought it was cool too. Um, there was, as you would expect, a giant spike in the indoor activities in March and April. Um, the outdoor activities, particularly around the world and other places outside the United States where people weren't really allowed to even leave their houses, uh, went way down and indoor activities went way up. And then around the world in May, when people were started getting it back outside again, there was a giant spike in outdoor activities. And so you had more activities indoor than normally you would have in March and April. And you had more activities outdoor than you would normally have in May, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, Lots of increased community feature usage. Um, There was, like we said before, a huge increase in kudos. There was a 96% increase and the number of kudos that were given in May of 2020 versus the ones that were given in May of 2019. Um, 10 None points. of those were
2: given by Michelle.
0: So,
1: <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I should probably just give a general apology that if you follow me on Strava, um, I only gave three kudos the whole year. So please don't take it personally that I don't give you kudos. I gave okay.
0: you 400 in one night. Michelle. Yeah, that
1: was horrific, actually.
0: Michelle, it begs the question. What were the three?
1: I think I might have given you one. I don't know. For what? Yeah, I'm sure I didn't give you one. I mean, I don't know. Am I really supposed to go find this?
0: No, you're not supposed to go find it. But I'm I'm just wondering, if you never gave kudos, you gave three kudos throughout the course of the entire year, what inspired you so deeply?
1: I probably gave Lauren Fogarty a kudo on maybe a run that we passed each other on or something one morning. Maybe... I don't know. I only follow eight people. I only see eight people. So. Right, very
0: good. And, so. and, and, and just so that you won't think, or, or just so that, but can we be fair here? We can be fair here. I received about four times the number of kudos that I gave last, uh, last year on Strava. It told me at the end, uh, which is not great. And so I've actually resolved to try and give more kudos on Strava in order to try and get my numbers a little bit more even. So, um, Eric, what about you, man? how how was your How was your balance of Strava kudos received to Strava kudos given? I gave more kudos than I received. Oh, very nice, Eric. You are the one that's bringing up the moral it's level not about the moral standards. It's, so, so clearly it's not about it's not. Me. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you, about the other runners. So, right on, Eric. You are. You. It's are also the, because
2: you and michelle are my friends and you follow me and you don't I give actually people kudos don't
1: follow you on strava i'm looking right now and it says <laughs> it says eric hall follow back should i click that yeah,
0: probably not, We're You're not gonna get, you won't do anything, <laughs> You're not gonna get for You're not anything out of, of any it kudos
1: i yeah. <laughs> other places if you want me there's other ways to get in touch with me this is, this is
0: what i get all right so here's one that is of interest to me and as soon as i start talking about it i know that michelle is going to roll her eyes at me but but there was a 428 percent increase in everesting activities in july of 2020 versus july of 2019 Um, a 428 percent increase which i think is incredible um, because that is just a huge huge increase as races were canceled and as both professionals and amateurs were unable to satisfy their competitive spirit via racing, uh, they turned in mass to Everesting, this challenge that we've talked about a lot last year in which you go to the bottom of a single hill and you go up and down that single hill as many times as it takes for you to get 29,029 feet of elevation gain for the ride. Um, you can do a virtual version. Um, it has to be on Zwift, um, according to the rules. Um, and that's something that intrigues me in the first few months of the year as well, but i just, haven't quite gotten there just yet. Um, the lowest number of repeats. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the, (laughs) the lowest number of repeats was four. And so somebody went to the bottom of a hill, went to the top, bottom, top, bottom, top, bottom, top. And just in those four repeats, those four climbs, they got 29,000 feet. That was a hell of a climb. That was a seven plus thousand foot foot climb. They did four times. That was, that's a lot of climbing to do just four times. Uh, The average is 43. Did you see what the highest number of repeats was? (laughs) 1,001.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Average, like how really would that be. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's like going up the stairs in your house
0: totally yeah one thing like yeah it's it, it's exactly like going up the stairs in your house it's 29 feet so so you literally got 29 feet of elevation gain on every single climb just up and down and up and down that's and up like and a thousand times a can thousand you imagine? Times. Oh my God, a thousand and one times somebody did that, but they knocked it out and they're in the Everesting Hall of Fame now. So kudos to them. The average amount of time it took for men was 16 hours and 47 minutes. The average time it took for women was 17 hours and 13 minutes. And so it's a pretty huge all day long commitment for sure. Um, and then of course, some people were doing it fast as we talked about a lot last year. Uh, the men's record was broken six times and it finally finished with American Sean Gardner um, in September, setting the record, becoming the first person to go under seven hours for it. Uh, the women's record was broken four times, and eventually the person who settled with the record was a British Olympian and former world champion Emma Pooley. Um, and afterwards, Pooley said, quote, the whole point was to challenge myself, find my limits and push them. Well, okay, it f- found, felt more like my limits found me and punched me into a ditch, but still, it was tough. I genuinely enjoyed it, and there was plenty of time to think. <laughs> When, one thing about Everesting is the more you read the accounts of the people who have done it, the less you want to do it. <laughs> it's the only thing that I've ever experienced like that. Most of the time when people talk about like Race Across America or the Leadville 100 or these other kind of big epic events, you read about it and you're like, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds great. Everesting, it sounds cool until you start reading people and then you're like, wow, that really doesn't sound all great. Right. On a similar, uh, a similar note, just kind of as a side note here from the Strava report, there there was a guy named Michael Knudsen from Denmark, uh, who was a pretty normal guy. He had done Ironmans and stuff like that, uh, but he turned to ultracycling after his son was born in 2016. Um, he set a V Everesting record uh, just a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact, on January sixth. Um, he uh, he. Had done kind of this weird stuff in the past. He set up uh, his bike on a trainer in a mall in October of 2019 and rode 5,000 kilometers on Zwift on one occasion. Um, and uh, anyway, he set the new VA racing record on, uh, on the 6th of January, uh, did 7.17 going uh, eight and a half times up and down out to Zwift, which is one of the big climbs there in the the Zwift world. Uh, he said, quote, the physical challenge was greater than expected as if I was sprinting a marathon. And he said, additionally, I dug as deep as I possibly could and that leaves your body in a big hole. I personally only have so many times a year I can push my head and body down in that hole. And this event was surely one. It's both your head and your body, which needs to recover after pushing for so long for so hard. Um, I mean, he said it that way, but then he was he was doing a race like three days later on Zwift in the Premier League as part of the Zwift Racing League. So, yeah, I don't know. And he was near the front on that one. Um, But he is he's going to be going for an in real life record, trying to break Sean Gardner's record later on in the spring. So so we'll see there about that. But anyway, did he did he get off his bike and let it just roll down the hill? I assume so. Yeah. So the way he said, the way that he thought about it was that it took him between about 40 and 43 minutes to go up out to Zwift. And if you've been on out de Zwift, on Zwift, that's a pretty quick climb of out to Zwift. Um, I mean, so he's clearly a very powerful rider in addition to just being a great ultra cyclist. Um, and so he said it was 40, 43 minutes up and 10 minutes of rest on the way down. And so did he get off his bike? Yeah, he probably did. Um, Cause you can do that on your V Everesting, unlike in obviously, in real life everesting when you can't get off the bike as the bike is descending down the mountain otherwise the bike would leave you behind um so so (laughs) so yeah actually
2: your bike wouldn't actually make the turns (laughs) as it does in Zwift
0: So Erica, uh, Eric's least favorite aspect, Michelle, of Zwift is the fact that if your bike is going downhill, it'll go downhill by off. itself. And so you can get off the bike and you can go use the bathroom or something else like that.
1: I'm fascinated. I never knew that. I don't understand that. How does it count? How does a so, virtual Everstein record count if you get off a bike?
0: So that's just kind of the nature of it, that, that you have you to pull up, but but you, you get off the bike and, and you can you walk don't. around for 10 to 15 minutes.
2: Again, you don't. You don't get so, off the bike. So You so. stay on the
0: bike but but people but people get off the bike now Michael Knutson, I assume that he did because most people do but I really don't know but
1: George but, are you surprised that the average the differential between the average time for the men and the women in everstein is so small it's only about 26 minutes
0: I'm not um I'm I'm not because as you know
1: like there's the same thing the longer
0: yeah
1: I feel like when it comes to ultra ultra running the right. longer women and men go like the right. less of, you know what I mean women
0: no, that's exactly what I was about to say. They're better over
1: a longer distance than over, let's say a 5k. So that's exactly what I was going to say.
0: Yeah. As, as the distance gets longer, the, the gap between men and women shrinks. Um, and so I think this is just another example of that. Um, so, so yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Um, I was surprised that the averages are that high, um, 16 hours and 17 hours. That's a A long long time time to be an average. Um, (sighs) and so I was surprised that That many people, so many people are going out and doing this massive all day climbing affair. Um, So, so yeah, I was surprised by that. Um, But anyway,
2: I have a theory on why those times are so why the, the gap narrows as the distance increases. So tell us. I think women are more mentally strong than men.
1: Yeah, for sure. There, there
0: are, there, there are two prevailing theories. That's one of them. Um, and I think honestly, and this is not just me trying to placate Michelle. Um, I, I, I think that, 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 women truly are mentally tougher than men, um, and, and can, can brook a level of physical exhaustion, particularly pain, but more particularly exhaustion that men just can't endure. Um, and, and then the other, the other thing that's similar, um, is that that they are mentally and physically more cut out for long term or, or, or long distance events, physical events, because they've been involved for childbirth. Um, but we can
1: withstand pain for really long periods right. of time. With
2: withstand so pain if we pain come up with a nine stress. month So if we come up with a nine month ultra marathon, the women are gonna Oh yeah. Really oh no! We, 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 Anybody we
1: already, who's we already, already run that one. cycle's bailing. Yeah. We already
0: have one. It's called pregnancy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and it and it there's a real sting in the tail, <laughs> as 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 one of the three people on the uh, the the podcast can attest by by uh, personal experience. Um, All right, let's talk about just a couple more things here because we don't want to drag on too long. But um, I did want to talk about the Tokyo Olympics real quick. And so, reminder everybody to real quickly about our book. Um, The book that we're reading uh, right now is called Running to the Edge, um, and it's by Matthew Futterman. Um, I opened up an article on the New York Times the other day and I ended up sending it to Michelle and to Eric. And I read the article and then looked back to see who the author was. And the author was. Matthew, Matthew Futterman, learned. as it turns out. Yeah, um, but it was about the uh, the Tokyo Olympics um, and about whether the Tokyo Olympics is going to happen. Um, as we all know, of course, unfortunately, COVID-19 is is as bad, if not worse, than it's ever been, unfortunately, here almost a year after the first cases or more than a year after the first cases were detected. Um, the Olympics were postponed in 2020 um, to 2021. They were scheduled to be in Tokyo in in August of July and August of 2020. And now the opening ceremonies are rescheduled to be on July 23rd of 2021. What do you think, Michelle, is going to happen?
1: Well, I will say that we've seen a tremendous uh, shift in the narrative coming from a lot of the people that are going to make that decision. I think the most profound one is IOC's Dick Pound. Um, You know, at the very beginning of January, I mean, he was basically saying that the Olympics was hopefully going to forge ahead. Let's vaccinate the athletes first i mean he seemed pretty confident even if athletes weren't chosen for vaccination that they were gonna um proceed and the olympics would happen even if they happened differently but in this article that we're talking about um that was i think january 15th uh he comes out and basically says that there's quote no guarantee that the games would take place so Um, I think we're also seeing a shift in the leadership uh, from Japan, like as a country as coronavirus surges there. So i'm I'm not hopeful. I yeah. think uh, you know, unless a massive number of people are vaccinated in an incredibly quick, you know, time frame, uh, i don't I don't see how it's how it's safe to bring athletes there. I don't see how Japan opens its country and its borders and, and just its general population to to the risk that that we've seen is just prevalent everywhere and it's roaring and there's different strains and I mean I get it. It's these people's livelihood and it only comes around once every four years and we've already missed a year, but there's hundreds of thousands of people dying. So Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. the Olympics. I don't think it should take place if it was if it's going to be like this six months from now. So
0: the the, the IOC did say they're not going to postpone it again. And so right it is so, right it's so already it's, it's, going it's, it's, to
1: Paris in 2024 LA in 2028 right. and they're not going to they're going to go back to the winter stuff in 2022. So yeah, this right. is Japan's last chance. I think they're over 12 billion dollars in at this point. Um you know, they'll be like every other city after the Olympics comes and goes and just probably left with a lot of infrastructure and stuff that doesn't get used anymore.
0: But um, never even got used once.
1: Never <laughs> and, even got and, used and, and, once. And, and right. And didn't
0: have the big influx of cash that happens as a sure. result of all those people coming there. No, and, it's a and all horrible, that. Yeah. horrible,
1: horrible, horrible yeah. situation. But
0: the ramifications
1: dollars, so. yeah. of bringing thousands of people from all over the world together for for sport, like if it's going to cause people to die, I mean, really? Like, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. I would love to watch all the things, but not if the risk is life. So
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Olympics too. Eric, what do you think?
2: We're at two people dying every minute in the United States. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't get your attention, nothing will. And I'm gonna stop talking to you. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent a believer if you are not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And if you're going about your life and you're doing things that are unnecessary, that are putting yourself or others at risk, you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the Olympics too, but I do not find that that is an essential gathering of people uh, for, and if you don't gather the people, a lot of the effects of what you just mentioned to Japan, to Tokyo, they're, they're going to exist, right? Mm -hmm. The infrastructure wasn't just built for the athletes Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. requires the people to arrive to, you know, bring the value. So I I feel horrible about everything that's on hold, postponed, uh, canceled, but it's a, it's a global pandemic. This is, this is, these are trying times and they require desperate measures.
0: I agree. Um, I agree. I, I, I don't feel positive about it. Um, And I think that, I think all three of us don't feel optimistic about it, just kind of given where we are right now. Um, And I I dare say that the three of us are also, or have a similar thought as to whether it even should happen. Um, For me, you know, I would love, and the article mentioned this, that Futterman wrote in the New York Times, I would love for this to be this big celebration, this right. worldwide celebration yeah. that, hey, we conquer this and we come out of it and we're, we're, we're so much better on the other side. I don't think that we're gonna quite be at the celebration point yet. We're not gonna be at the finish line by the time the, the July 23rd rolls around. Um, and I think that, that having a big mass gathering where you bring people from all over the world and put them all together, um, and they spend this time together, and then they go back to their parts of the world. Um, I, I think that that's um, not only in and of itself dangerous, but I also think that that if they were to pull off an Olympic spectacle, it would send the wrong message in terms of what we should still be doing in order to ensure that we cross the finish line with the pandemic. Um, so I'm, I'm not feeling optimistic about it, but like I said, I'm not even sure whether it should happen. Um, I mean, things can change certainly between now and July, um, but given how bad it is right now, I don't see it changing that much, but. I,
1: I will say right? that I, I do a little bit disagree with you, Eric, in that I think the COVID protocols that are in place for the athletes, at least, you know, from what is being shown to us and in a very in a variety of sports are, are pretty strict i mean i think you know these big running groups uh like brooks beast in seattle like they're not even allowed to travel you know they're just staying with each other um they're they're not traveling to there's a bunch of indoor races coming up i mean i think people the people that are training and the people that trained last summer through this i think they take it seriously um i think a lot of the athletes especially the ones who had trouble, you know, getting into a pool, let's say, or just getting back into a gym. I mean, the stuff that's reopened up, um, we don't seem to be seeing, you know, mass spread with within these groups of elite athletes and, Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I think people can, you know, keep going about it and keep training. And, you know, I think worst case scenario for, for us or for North America is we'll see another summer of really fast, awesome racing. (laughs) Because um, we saw that last summer, and that was unexpected. But I do think, um, you know, I don't, I don't think they're part of the problem in the sense that they are continuing to just do their job and train as if the Olympics are going to happen. Because I'm not sure what else they could be doing right now.
0: Yeah, I, I, I well, I think too, um, and um, I'll, I'll let Eric respond to that here in a second. And I, but what you're describing there, I think, is maybe a middle road between what we're envisioning and 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 a complete cancellation um because I, I think there's absolutely no way that the olympics can or should come off in the way that the japanese olympic committee originally planned for them to when they bid for it way back in 2012 or whenever it is where they reward the 2020 olympic games right there's no way that can or should happen um, uh, can they potentially have a very limited set of, of athletic competitions where this, the athletes all come in and they're quarantined and they had to be there two weeks early and they're socially distanced and they don't have an athlete's village or anything else like that. Kind of like the way that they pulled off um, the, the marathon, marathon project, project or, or even the London marathon or something like that. Can they do that? Maybe. I mean, something with that many different athletes from that many different countries would take a level of organization that would be man on the moon type stuff. But but it would also um, be
1: just not really the Olympic spirit. So when I said, I thought we could see a summer of really fast racing again, I'm really just talking about races within continental United States. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, I don't know.
0: We'll see. Eric, what do you think? I agree with you, Michelle. Mm-hmm.
2: And I think it, the way I stated what I stated, I I made it sound like all athletic events and all athletic gatherings are, are part of the problem. That's, that's not what I was trying to say. You, you actually brought up a really good thing of, um, people doing the right thing with the right controls and being limited in their numbers and maybe even excessive in their controls. And I would guarantee if they had an outbreak or something, they would disperse allow it to, you know, settle out before they came back together. They, so that's different than just getting together and going about your business and saying, well, we're wearing masks, so we're safe. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, I actually think that exercise and sport is an essential piece to your life. And I think the three of us would agree when you can't do that, it has a mental effect on you and that affects your work and affects everything. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't go exercise. I'm not saying that people shouldn't go exercise together. I'm saying that it should be limited. It should be controlled. And when something happens, you know, say someone gets infected or sick or whatnot, there needs to be a, okay, I'll stop, break apart, quarantine, and then we recover and come back together. And you can't do that with the Olympics. I don't think you can accomplish that with the Olympics.
1: Not by the time you bring hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world into one town.
2: (laughs) But, so. but plenty of events have been run over the over the course of the past year sure. where they have been able to do it, and I, I agree with those because I think people need to see it happening done done correctly. I think the athletes need to participate in those. Uh, you know, I, I yeah I think that's important.
0: All right, let me pose a what if to both of you. So because to me the 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 real complicating factor of the Olympics uh, and of any international event is the bringing together of people from lots of different places like that to me is, is the and then sending them back out like that to me is just like like part of the super spreader recipe. Right. And so so do you envision or would you think it was a good idea if the Olympic committee said, OK, we're going to have an Olympic Games, um, but we're only going to invite four countries for every event. We're only going to have the five countries that won the most gold medals. We're only going to have 10 people for event per event, and they're going to be the top 10 ranked people in the world, or something like that, that would cut down on just the sheer number of people coming from 180 different places around the globe. Do you think that would be a good idea? Would that be advisable? Is that something you would support? Michelle, what do you think?
1: I don't think... First of all, I don't think these committees could organize to figure something out like that. And second of all, I don't think the, I don't think the athletes would want to participate in that. I think there's enough now where, um, the disappointment of 2020, you know, like the real shock of the Olympics aren't happening. They're going to be postponed is, is the, probably the worst of it. I mean, anybody training now for 2021 Olympics knows, you know, that there is beyond a shadow of a doubt the potential that the Olympics aren't going to happen. And given the option, you know, would you want to go if you were top 10 in your event? I mean, would it actually be the Olympics? I'm not sure. I mean, if my sponsor said, yeah, you were chosen, you have to go, you know, there's a payout, <laughs> there's, you know, bonus potential on the line, then I think you're going to go. But I, it's not going to feel like the Olympics. So I Eric. I don't know. I-
2: two points one one of the essential aspects of the olympics is that you bring all the countries together yeah not and not <laughs> just the athletes so i and michelle alluded to that earlier you're like that's kind of what it's about yeah you can come up with all sorts of virtual you know they're, they're on different tracks and they're competing against one another and mm-hmm. those sorts of things but it, it won't be the olympics so, yeah. so that's number one i i, I just don't think that what it works. But Michelle's second point, you know, it's funny we're, we're reading the book um, because in the book, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but one piece of it talks about Meb and the marathon and not being able to stay in the Olympic Village.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good.
2: Mm-hmm. Didn't but like that. The Olympic
1: that. Village is more fun.
2: But <laughs> the Olympic Village is more fun, right?
0: But you sleep on Crete. But you sleep on Crete is but, what Bob Larkin
2: yeah. 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 So... <laughs> I agree with Michelle on that point. I don't think the athletes would feel like it's the Olympics. There'd be no
0: Olympic village. Yeah. How old, Does anybody Olympic know if village? Meb
1: got to stay in the Olympic Village in Athens after he ran the marathon? So,
0: I don't, haven't gotten to that part of the book yet. I guess we'll find out, right? right. So, we need to, so, I hope. But the marathon—the marathon's the last event, so no. I mean, right. did, did they get to spend the last night?
1: We only know this from the first ten pages of the prologue, so, but that's,
0: right. that's it's right. on page seventeen, actually. So,
1: okay, first ten minutes. If you're listening to it on Audible, I'm listening and reading now. I'm doing the George way.
0: Right on. Um, I uh, yeah. Is it is it the Olympics without the Olympic Village? I think that's a really just sort of succinct way of answering that question um, or posing that question. And and I think the answer is now um, they might do it anyway.
1: <laughs> that's right.
0: Um, but we'll see. But we'll see.
1: I do think if if it is a situation where they do it anyway, and athletes either choose or you know or, or forced or compelled to go for sponsor obligations, I do think the athletes by far and large will make the best of. Of whatever For it sure. is just because everything it seems that any opportunity there is to to race people are are showing up ready to race and, and really appreciative of it so Agreed. i think uh flexibility is probably going to be <laughs> the key to surviving any type of athletic endeavor at the olympic level this year so it
0: will continue to be uh, and not just surviving an athletic endeavor at the olympic level but but pretty much anything everything anything and <laughs> everything yes over the course of 2020 part two here, aka 2021. <laughs> I
1: know. What happened to 2021?
0: Where'd you go? <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Michelle, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Eric, thanks for being here. Great. Thanks, George. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasant podcast. On Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. On Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or Spotify. So share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at ITLCoaching.com. On Twitter, at ITL Coaching. On Facebook, at Facebook.com slash ITL Coaching Performance. And on Instagram, ITL Coaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel. BluePineappleTravel.com. Facebook.com slash Blue Pineapple Travel and on Instagram, Blue Pineapple Travel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's SlayRx.com, Facebook.com slash Here for SlayRx. That's the number 4 SlayRx. Twitter at Official SlayRx. and Instagram Here for SlayRx. The number 4 SlayRx. Discount code Pleasant21. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.